This is the East Trauma Cast. Trauma Cast. With your moderators, Kevin Pei from the Yale School of Medicine, Dave Morris from Intermountain Medical Center in Salt Lake City, Utah, and Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. Hello, everybody. Welcome to TraumaCast. This is Kevin Pay, your TraumaCast moderator. And along with me are co-moderators, uh, Matt Martin and Dave Morris. How's it going, guys? Great, thanks. Ha- happy to be here. Great. Um, we have two fantastic guests today, um, Dr. Charity Evans and Dr. Nicole Stoss. And I'm, I'm going to ask them. We're really glad that you guys joined us. Um, if you could, please, um, Charity and, and Nicole, go ahead and introduce yourselves to our audience. Absolutely. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. My name is Charity Evans. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska Medical Center in Omaha, Nebraska. And I'm Nicole Sasson. I'm a professor of surgery at the University of Rochester, and I'm super glad to be here. Great. Thanks. And and today's topic is, is a tough one. It's something that we, um, as acute care surgeons and traumatologists, deal with all the time, which is delivering bad news. And um, I think it's a difficult topic, and it's a very complex topic where evidence-based medicine is, is elusive, and therefore our two experts are going to, I think, shed a lot of light on how they handle uh, the scenarios. If it's okay with you guys, Charity and Nicole, I'd like to maybe start start this conversation by by um, sharing a recent case scenario that I had, uh, which was which was difficult for me, and I'd like to hear both of you um, kind of share how you would handle the situation. Um, the the patient is a young football player, a high school star, only son. Uh, he was crossing the street and was struck by an SUV and uh, arrived comatose. Surprisingly, all his vitals were okay. He, he wasn't significantly injured and, except um, an obvious traumatic brain injury. And over the ensuing next days, you know, the, the neurosurgeons and the neurointensivists all said, uh, unfortunately, he doesn't have a, a chance of meaningful recovery. And that's where we came in. This is where we're at two days, three days out. How would um, how would you start? How would you begin this conversation with mom and dad? And maybe we can start with um, charity. So I, I agree with you. These are tough situations. I think um, for whatever reason, especially when it when it is somebody young with um, with a you know a big life ahead of them. Um, I, I typically will start out um, by by obviously bringing the family into a an area that is is quiet and uninterrupted. Because I think that um, as our pagers go off, as we get text messages, that it gives the appearance that we're not present and that we're not um, that this isn't a priority to us. So I wanted to be clear to the family that they have my attention and that um, that this is important to me and that I understand the se- the severity and the seriousness of what's going on. Um, with that, I, I usually will start off by asking them um, what they know so far and and what what they think um, has is going on with their son and and where we're at in the process of of his workup and his um, recovery because it gives us an idea of perhaps where they're coming from because I think sometimes um, patients and patients' families they they don't always understand why we ordered that EEG or why we ordered that you know blood flow study to see if the patient is brain dead or or what workup we're doing. And so to clarify all of that information with them, um, usually we'll bring them up to speed and hopefully clear up any um, miscommunication or any concerns that they might have. And then I think um, being kind, um, being compassionate, but also being honest 
and um, using words that are clear. I think sometimes people have a hard time saying things like dead or brain dead or severely injured, and I think that that's important to the process of understanding and to um, to help them understand what their what their son is going through and what the future looks like. Um, Nicole, what do you right, and, and yeah, Nicole, what what um, what's your approach in talking to mom and dad in this situation? And and I would also um, specifically, if you could also address when you're talking to the family about this, especially this this young kid, are you pushing them towards a specific a particular decision as you're discussing uh, end of life issues with them? Well, I think all of that. Um, I think yes and no. I think it's it's a it's a guided herding of heartbroken cats, for lack of a better expression. I think that um, I echo a lot of what Charity said, but I think that you really start building the discussion you're having that day the moment you meet mom and dad, the moment you meet them when he first comes in, um, and ha um, what I mean by that, you know, they don't know us from anybody, and even that first interaction, you you recognize that there's a significant injury starting to lay some groundwork. So it's not like they're getting hit with that sort of you know, goals of care discussion out of the blue and laying groundwork for that over several days. I think that the situation you just described, somebody who is not brain dead but exquisitely brain injured, is a a a different discussion in a way because it isn't black and white. You know, if they're brain dead, they're dead. And it's a it's a different discussion. It's not having to guide them through their broken hearts, et cetera, um, because the son that they had is irrevocably changed at that moment. So I start actually from the beginning when I meet the parents the first time, um, as um, as one of my partners would say, I, I tend to run on the polypessimist side, um, where he is more the, the Susie Sunshine. But, you know, going through head-to-toe what the injuries are with the individual, I think it's incredibly important, like Cassidy said, asking what they understand. So that, that first moment they come in, what do you know? What have you heard? Well, this is what we know now, and this is what we don't know. And always being very clear about what we don't know. Because what they're looking for is that black and white answer. And in the situation you described, there isn't one. Because it all comes down to what the, what he would consider a quality of life. Um, I feel like I'm sort of babbling in a circle, and I promise you do it better with the families. But um, you, know, you start with that groundwork, meeting the family, building that relationship with them, guiding them through, you know, if you know, are they on? You know, they're going to have that fluctuating exam, but are they on a fluctuating exam path that's moving in a positive direction, a neutral direction, or a negative direction? And you know, we expect to see in the next three to four days as they go through maximal swelling where they are. Um, I think that keeping it in lay terminology is incredibly important, um, and I think sometimes. Um, as you're going through, making sure you're checking in. Okay, where are you guys? Are you understanding what we're talking about? What questions do you have? Where do you think we are now? Because I think we, it, it, it's not, it's, that discussion is never routine. Um, but that groundwork that you've built over those few days, I think, gives you a sense of, is this a family that is going to be moving towards, you know, trach, 
Winnipeg skilled nursing facility where this, you know, 20-year-old kid is going to live out the rest of their, his days, and that may not be what, and thank God I've never been in that position with my own children, um, I'd like to think I wouldn't commit my children to that, but that's not our decision to make. And then always drawing it back to, you know, what was his favorite thing to do? What did what made life life for him? You know, if he was an active football playing kid, you know, having people wipe wipe his bottom in a nursing home where he can't recognize anybody is probably not an outcome. So, and I think that making sure there's consistency and discussion between the different care teams. I don't know about your neurologically oriented individuals, but you know, like and he'll he'll recover. Well. You have to define what recover means. Right. For them, it means heart and lungs are functioning, but not that his brain is functioning. So, yeah. and I'm, I'm very proud of, you know, he will never be the same individual that he's going to be. And I start that from the first day. How close will we get to it? Back to that, we'll see over the next few days. And then as you're coming into that goals of care discussion, it's not coming completely out of the blue. I think the discussion itself, having a pre-discussion in your own mind, um, and again, as um, as Charity also said, where do they think they are? What do they think they're seeing? It, and I think you know the hand grasp and some of the other things that are spinal reflexes, I will go through everything with them, with the patient, with them there so they so we can so we're seeing the same things. Because I think ultimately they need to trust you. Right. So you know, it's a, you, an incredibly uh, long winded answer. No, it's it's Yeah, it's actually because, the, uh, and I I wanna highlight well that one thing you said, Nicole, which is so important of that that discussion of here's the diagnosis and prognosis and then let's make a bunch of important decisions. Those have to be separated. You know, when you tell them their loved one is is dead, brain dead, or persistent vegetative state, they they will not remember a single next thing that is said or discussed. And and you got to. I think it's just we're going to have to talk about some decisions later. But you know, now let you just let that sink in, let you deal with that, let you think about that. I, I think that's that's so important. And, and when you go right into now, make these decisions. That's just that's a bad way to approach it. Well, I think ultimately, you know, the individual in the bed isn't suffering at that moment, and I think our responsibility is 100% for the patient. But also, it shifts at that point to, you know, we can't. We can't fix their loved one, but if they could just leave our institution heartbroken with as few woulda, coulda, shouldas, then that's as important as anything we could have done for that individual because we can't give them their son back. Um, and I think that, you know, and you know, I think you need to get a sense of the families we had, a similar situation that you just described where you know, the parents were divorced, but they still got along very well. And each of them shifted, you know, initially one of the one of the parents was like, no, he would never want to go to a skilled facility. And then he shifted away from that because he just couldn't imagine not moving forward. Like, I'm making this. The other thing I focus on is like, you're not choosing for your son to die. Right. right. You're not. That that choice was taken away when he got hit by the car. What 
your you know what you know what would you want? You would want to turn back time, predict that this was going to happen, to have it never happen. But that's what we all want. Nobody wants their loved one to be irrevocably changed. But what would the loved one want in this situation? Would they want to keep moving forward? Is would they be okay with that? If they could sit up right now and tell you, what would they tell you? And I think the challenge of their younger patients is they haven't had that discussion. And I do think there's more uncertainty in that plastic younger brain, not necessarily with what you described, where there's basically rudimentary brainstem function and not much else. Um, you know, but even if they recover further and maybe they do open their eyes or they do interact with them with their family, that family is still irrevocably changed. I think um, the, both of you brought up a really important point, which is that to have a, I think to have a successful conversation in delivering bad news at end of life, you have to build some modicum of trust with the family. But here's what's so tough about, I think, our trauma patients. We often don't have the luxury of a week, two weeks, because our patients frequently decompensate rapidly. And I would love to hear, how do you two build rapport with the family? Let's say the patient's a little bit different. They're rapidly decompensated in the trauma resus bay, and you don't have that time to earn their trust. And how, So in that situation, how do you build the, the rapport, and how do you build trust in those time-limited situations? I think um, it, it's awful. <laughs> is what it is. It's awful. I think um, sitting down, making eye contact, if you know the individual, finding out the individual's name so you can refer to them by name. I mean, here are, you know, our trauma names are ZZ, some city, and a a middle initial. Um, Asking what they were like as a human before. Um, So it's not, hi, by the way, you know, I'm Dr. So-and-so, your son's dead. Um, you know, what do you the, the same beginning, what do you know? What do you understand of what happened? I think that oftentimes, um Adel Heider actually wrote a, a lovely essay about this a couple of years back where he did you know, I don't want to be anybody's family physician. I think the expressions we carry on our face give a lot away of what we're coming in to tell them. Um I never go in with a chaplain. Um, you don't go in with the chaplain? I don't. Um, so our chaplains will sit with the families before, but I don't bring them with me when I go in to talk to them. Because it's, and, and that's somewhat personal preference, and I think, you know, you're coming in with a herd of humans, and the family deserves their privacy. Um, I'll, I'll bring social work with me, but, you know, when you have, for me, it, clergy sends the warning bells up, they're dead. Mm-hmm. And before you can even, what do you know? What do you think? This is what we found. But I'm sorry, they died. You know, we, there was, and being clear in the discussion, not they passed away, et cetera, et cetera, using pro, you know, proper words, kind of like, you know, if it's cancer, you have to use the cancer word. Um, and then staying with them, if yeah, I can. Yeah. And if we can, during the code, I'll send somebody out to, again, lay a little bit of that groundwork. They're here. They're super sick. We can't tell you a lot, but it doesn't look really good. 
so that we can have a little bit of that um a little bit of that building block um, so and sometimes you can't and you're going in completely cold and with that I will have the conversation in my own head um uh, but most importantly I stay um and it's it I think it steals a part of your soul every time and charity you know I'd love to hear how you would how do you build rapport in a short amount of time but also um, the one thing that I always feel really awkward about is I've de- I, I'm sitting in this uh, private uh, private conference room. There's 20 people in the room, and I tell them your loved one is not going to make it; they're going to die. I don't know when to get up and leave. Mm-hmm. I, I just sit there because there's a lot of crying. There's there's a lot of emotion, and I never know when is it okay to get up and leave. So I, you know, Terry, I'd love to hear what what your take is on all this. So I I take an approach similar to Nicole, and I agree that the ending is is always difficult, um, I think, especially for us physicians, and I'll tell you why. So I do go in with the chaplain, and that's part institutional because our chaplain, as opposed to social worker, sees every trauma patient that comes in as a as a coded trauma. So um, they are always present, and I usually tell them that it is the chaplain and that they do see all of our trauma patients, and that's why he or she is with me because I do agree with you that some people, and you'll even see it on their faces once we say this is the chaplain, then they'll say, oh, gosh, what's wrong kind of thing. Well, Charity, I'm sorry to interrupt. So I'll ask them after we've talked whether they want clergy so that we do involve them. I just try to not bring a a mob in for the initial discussion. And I agree. A mob is, is... is, can be difficult, and I, the other part that I find interesting about the mob is that um, how we learn to do this. And so sometimes I have this um, kind of internal debate of of that that the learners, you know, whether it's the residents, the medical students, that um, they need to see people do this and do it well. Um, and they also, unfortunately, sometimes see people not do it well at all, and so they learn what to do and what not to do. And so creating that opportunity for them, but then also um, respecting the family's need for, for some time and for some emotion and for some processing. Um, it, I agree that, that it is the, the more people that are present, it does make it difficult. I typically go in and I will introduce myself and make it very clear what my role was. And I'll even say, you know, I, I was the doctor caring for Mary or, you know, call the person by name or I am the doctor caring for Mary. Um, I, too, will ask who's in the room. It helps me frame the conversation if I know who's mom and dad or who's Definitely. or who's a family friend three times removed kind of thing. Um, and I usually will repeat back to me what they say. And, and so if they say I'm dad, then I usually will say it's nice to meet you, dad, and kind of smile to let them know that I acknowledge that you have that role in this person's life. Um, I always sit down. The studies have shown that even sitting down makes patients feel as though you've spent more time with them. Um, and there is something about getting to eye level and showing them that I'm I'm here, I'm not in a rush, I'm not ready to leave the room, but actually sitting down. Um, I, I try to shake hands or whatever it seems in that moment is an appropriate gesture of of connection. Um, if it is shaking hands or, you know, a quick hand on the shoulder kind of thing to be able to say again that, I'm here for you guys and that we're we're going to mm-hmm. talk. Um, I, I do a similar thing. Then, again, I ask what they know and where we're at, and then I typically get to it. Um, I, I think a lot of people, they don't want that moment stretched out, and so I don't spend a whole lot of time talking about much other than the information. Again, this is when it's an acute thing, and I don't have time to build rapport over several weeks, but let's say they are already dead in the trauma bay. 
Um, I try to get to that news because you know that they're anxious and you know that they know that something is wrong because otherwise they wouldn't be at the hospital in an ER waiting room. Um, once I say the words, um, similar to what somebody said re uh, previously, I am I am absolutely quiet, and I do not say another word until they say a word. And part of that is is that they're processing that information, and I feel like we as as providers and as physicians need to give them that time to process that information. Right. And it's one of the hardest things in the whole wide world because I think as physicians, we tend to want to fill the air. We do a lot of talking. We do a lot of explaining. We do a lot of um, a lot of, of movement and being very quiet and being very still and allowing them whatever emotion is next. Um, sometimes I think is one of the hardest things that at least for me in this situation, once they say something, then I reopen the conversation. And I often uh, routinely apologize and say, I am very sorry that you're going through this. Um, and obviously I can't change the situation. I, I wasn't the one who shot them or the one who, you know, car that hit them. But I am sorry that they're going through this. It's not how it's supposed to go. You're not supposed to lose a child. You're not supposed to lose your loved one. And then as far as leaving, um, again, I typically wait until they have some sort of closure statement. Usually patients will say, you know, well, thank you. I know you did what you could or, you know, can I see them? Or there's some transition towards they're ready to move on. And, and other than that, I usually stay because, like Nicole said, I think being present is probably one of the most important aspects of this. Have, have either of you uh, been in a situation, because I personally have, where you are the bearer of bad news and you are doing it to the best of your ability and yet that has impeded or that has somehow negatively affected your rapport with the family and now you're seen as the bad guy. You're the one who wants to pull the plug and you're the one who um, isn't trying everything. Have you guys been in that situation and how do you deal with a family like that? Absolutely. Um, I think that um, you know, there are going to be families and I think um, nobody's ever perfect and there's no perfect way to do any of this and you are going to have families that you no matter how much you try you just cannot either um click with or um there's different factions of the family um and a, a couple of things i think staying with what you clinically know and illustrating that with the family, like, here are what the CAT scans show, here are what the other things show. I want the same things you you guys do. I want to be able to turn back time and have this never happen, but I can't do that. We don't have that. You know, that's not, we don't have a Harry Potter time turner. We don't have a DeLorean that could take us back a week um, in time. And then I'll also have, um, it it depends a little bit on the family. I think you do get a sense with families, families that are are that you're just really not able to connect with, or especially when there's disparate components of the family. Um, we have a great palliative care service, and uh, we have used our ethics service because I think having and I I prefer to refer to our palliative care service as our family support service because they need someone. In that case, I think they need someone who they don't perceive as having any skin in the game. I don't. I don't need my workload lessened by offing your relative. You know, that's that's not. Right. So, um, and and moving.
having that discussion, almost like you separate organ donation and goals of care discussions unless the family directly queries the same sort of thing. And I do think you get a little bit of a sense of that with the family that you've gotten to know, particularly the intensive care unit over time. Um, I think that also comes up when there's um, an unintended bad outcome. Um, so where you know, there's there's you're just not able to build that trust bridge. I think you need to give them another opportunity. You know, we have had families where what they express and what they do have been completely like grandma would never want to live like this, but we're going to keep her this way anyway. Right, exactly. Um, so, and we have definitely had occasion where you know things have gone on for ten, twelve, thirteen days, working on trying to because I trying to keep it keep. Um, Keep it from being an us them, and try to work around what looks what what feels like a schism. Um, and sometimes you just can't, and that's when I we use palliative care more than that. But particularly with a family where I'm starting to get that sense, I'll involve them earlier, um, and occasionally even ethics. So I think um, my biggest focus is doing most of the conversation, particularly with somebody who's irrevocably brain injured, in the room, when, a, when we do our clinical exams, this is what we're seeing. What are you seeing when you're when you're here? Show me. Let's talk about it. I I don't want to pee on your cornflakes every day when you show me. I swear he opened his eyes. Right. Not really. <laughs> well, at some point, you just sound you you just sound every day. You're just delivering bad news, and and yeah. then the family goes, "Well, boy, this this." This yeah. doc is never going to say anything optimistic to us, no. and we don't want to hear their message no. anymore. We don't want to hear it anymore, and I think that's where you know you still have to do your duty for the person in the bed, but I think you can acquire other support networks for the family. You know, you want a second opinion? I'll get you a second opinion. You know, bring it. Right. I'm you want it, we'll do it. Because ultimately, and one of the things I express to them is that, you know, yes, we've been through this a lot, but this is your only time. And if you need three other people to see them, that's fine. That's fine. We'll even help you find them. And if you don't trust us, you want to go to the Internet and find Dr. What's-His-Name at, you know, the hospital across town, if they're willing to come look at your loved one, I'm, that's fine. Yeah. So, um, and, Fortunately, it doesn't happen often. We probably have that about twice, two or three times a year, mm-hmm. where we can't, between our own palliative care service, the ethics service, our own ICU service, kind of work with it. Because there tends to be, you know, even in the really estranged families, you know, the one more rational member that you can kind of chip away at over time. Um, and then always keeping the focus on this is what's going on with the human in the bed. And they deserve better than what we're doing to them. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Nicole, you're um, bringing up the palliative care issue is a, is a great segue to, to um, I kind of want to shift gears a little bit. Um, you know, a, a recent AASD survey uh, was put out um, to the membership, and um, two things, was the, the two findings were interesting to me. I'm hoping that maybe Charity first and then Nicole also would address both of these issues. First, only about two-thirds, apparently, of intensivists or acute care surgeons discuss and uh, code status within 24 hours of ICU emission. That, that, to me, is a little surprising, so that's number one. But the second finding about palli- palliative care is that 
when they when they survey the membership and they say, well, when do you call palliative care? It seems like everybody's doing it in the circumstance that we just discussed that you just discussed, which is a difficult discussion, loss of um, rapport. But the general consensus is that we tend to get palliative care um, later in the course. And my question is. Should we have sort of like a team approach and anytime we feel like there is going to be an end-of-life discussion, just bring them on board and have everybody on board from the very beginning? So um, two-part question. I'm sorry for the complexity, but Charity, maybe if you can start um, about the uh, the code status and, and when, when would you get palliative care involved? Yeah, I think code status, I think um, we're, we're human like everyone else in that we um, sometimes shy away from difficult conversations. And obviously, um, discussing code status implies um, the possibility of death and that, that there may be the possibility for end of life and what would this person want us to do in this situation. And I think that we fear that, um, at least for me, I shouldn't speak for the masses, but that um, that even having that conversation will imply to the person that, that I foresee that this could be an outcome. And in all reality, I realize that that's an outcome for all of us. However, um, it seems that when it's being threatened that moment in the ICU that, that people say, well, do you think that, you know, you think that they're going to die? I tend to have that discussion uh, much more quickly when it is a very severely injured person or a person who is very, very sick. Um, and again, that probably isn't fair because then we get ourselves in trouble later when the person doesn't do well and then we need to have the discussion. Um, so I think that, that they're finding that, that we don't discuss it early probably because we're not as comfortable with it, um, and I think that we should be because I think that we do owe that to our patients. It also, and I often will tell patients, you know, when I do have that early earlier discussion that, you know, this is where we're at, and, you know, the person is currently stable, but if their heart were to stop, what would they want me to do? And I often will tell families, you know, I, I don't want to call you at 2 a.m., when this happens. I want to talk about this when it's calm and when we can have an actual discussion about it as opposed to calling you in the moment and saying we're currently doing CPR. Um, and so I, you know, frame it in saying that this is in part planning and, and I, we want to all be on the same page so that there's no surprises. Palliative care, I think, is a similar thing that describing to a family um, what palliative care does and what that means. I notice at our institution we tend to call um, for help with clarification of plans when, similar to what Nicole said, when a family's statement doesn't match what um, what they're actually doing. So to say that grandma would never want to live this way, but then to ask us to trach and peg grandma, um, you know, that there's a discourse there and that maybe somebody else involved in this would be able to um, provide some clarification. And I do agree that they they do come in as a great adjunct to what we do because it is another set of eyes. It's their approach is a little bit different. Um, and I think that that, that that helps to be able to have um, somebody who comes in to talk about comfort and about pain and about um, goals of care and goals of life. Um, whereas I think that we come in um, obviously with the intent to help and to to hopefully, you know, cure or recovery. So I think it does add an additional. But I would agree that um, a more multidisciplinary approach probably is the better the better approach. Right, and to piggyback, and really to piggyback off your earlier point about palliative care. So if it's true that, uh, let's say, one third of the AAST membership who participate in the survey are uncomfortable discussing code status and end-of-life issues, then isn't that an argument then to get palliative care early on? And furthermore, um, both of you had mentioned, uh, as well as Matt, this sort of separation of discussion of the current status of things and delivering the bad news and wanting some sort of a decision to be made. Wouldn't that be a perfect 
opportunity for us as the primary care um, providers to say, here's what's going on medically, and then have the palliative care team come in and handle the the decision um, portion of this. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts about that, Nicole? Um, <laughs> I think um, a couple of things. I think um, to address the code status question that you'd asked, mm-hmm. I think that we're much faster with it, at least in our unit, with the elderly person, you know, the one who's admitted for rib fractures. They're not intubated but they're sort of towing the line. I think we're pretty quick with those. I think we're much slower with the younger individuals and much for the reasons that Charity said. You know, you don't want to start the conversation in the first 12 hours when they're just processing the injuries of their loved one with these. So would they want their heart restarted? Uh, And I think we make that assumption that they would, whether that is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, And really you should have the formal discussion the other thing, and I'm sure your most forms have them as well, whenever I have that discussion with a family, we have a tick box where it can be verbal and witnessed, so they never have to physically sign the form. Um, and that's actually something that um, was suggested by one of our palliative care nurse practitioners. So they never have to have the visceral memory of signing the form to not resuscitate. Oh, that's really interesting. So... Um, and as I thought about it, you know, it's like, that that's a pretty, like, I'm signing for my mother to die. No, right. you're not. You're not. When I start with those discussions, one of the analogies I use is, you know, everything in our intensive care unit is a crutch to extend life and to get them better. But at some point, it's no longer a crutch. It now becomes, instead of extending life, we're prolonging death. And where that cost of transition comes in, and in that first discussion I have with the family about someone who's significantly injured or comes in critically ill with a general surgical problem or whatever, um, you know, these are all crutches to get better. Today is not that day where we're where we're looking at these are no longer crutches, but we may come to that day, and that's a that'll be a very different discussion. You know, 70% of the time, you never have to have that second discussion, but I lay that groundwork to start. As far as utilizing our palliative care service, and I think the challenge I have, I love our palliative care service. They're fantastic. Tim Quill is here. He's amazing. He's a guru. Their nurse practitioners are fantastic. I think when you have that family that you have rapport with, you've had these discussions on a daily basis, I think sometimes adding that other team in who now has to get to know the family when they're already well down the pathway towards towards end-of-life decision-making, for some families it can feel interruptive. I see. Um, so I, I think that's why I tend to delay or utilize it in the family that really is disparate and we're not able to navigate it on our own, much like you would use you know, your transplant surgeons for a heinous you know, liver, whatever, that you can't manage. The same sort of thing, taking it as far as we can and then involving the consulting service thereafter. I think if by policy is a lousy word, don't, but I can't think of a better one right now, but if by routine everybody was screened by our palliative care service, that would probably be beneficial. But I think, um, and maybe it's a little bit of Snobbery is also not the right word, but it's like, hey, I've been doing this for, you know, almost 20 years, and 
I've had a lot of end of life discussions with families and you know what, I'm pretty good at it. Um so, you know, I think the separation in some instances is essential. I think the separation in some instances some families feel unsettled with that. Right. Um but I think the majority of the time it's really both teams working together. Um, and then when palliative care meets with the families, we do have a representative, whether it's one of our nurse practitioners or um, the ICU attending, in with the family and also social work and then our care coordinator and the bedside nurse so that we're making sure that, that communication of that discussion is adequate. And to share with you, you know, our some of our – I hear this all the time from our palliative co- uh, colleagues – to answer to the very point that you just made about how we feel like when we involve them that they can because all of a sudden this new team is coming in to discuss end of life. And that's the same, but that sometimes that's the same argument that the palliative team um, uh, makes for us to involve them earlier right. in the process so that they feel like they're not new people. You know, the family yeah. knows who they are. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the, the dichotomy. And I think, you know, like you said, a little bit of this is sort of the, you know, I can manage AFib and I can certainly manage the discussion with a family who I really have, you know, I've spent the last two weeks with every single day, 30 to 40 minutes a day. So I think that um, we also tend to use them in our younger patients that we know are going to probably end up going more hospice or end up on our palliative care floor, where when you do withdraw, they're not going to die in a rapid fashion. Sure. We've asked some to you had asked earlier about do we come in with a preconceived plan or you know trying to guide the family and right. often liken it to my car because I don't you know I own a car I drive a car but I don't know anything really honestly about cars I don't have much interest in cars and so when the mechanic calls and says you know charity we need to do blah 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 you know well if you think that's best okay I don't even know what you're talking about and I feel like sometimes we ask a similar thing of our patients of saying, well, now you have this decision to make. And, you know, a lot of them come in with, with really no knowledge of of what it means to have a trach, what it means to, you know, be in a, a comatose state. Like all of these things, it's so much information. And so I think some of it does go into planning. And if it does mean involving palliative, I think the approaching the families, it comes in chunks. Because as yeah. you've already mentioned, there's things that they don't hear after a certain point. And so right. one day I may have the discussion of, you know, their lungs are failing, their kidneys are failing, that's what this machine is, this is what this machine is, and then I let it be. And I let that kind of soak in and then come back and say, now that we understand that these organs are failing, we see that this can't be, you know, life-sustaining, so on and so forth. And so I think, yeah, giving it it in doses, it is preconceived. Some of it is, um, but then obviously it's driven by the family. I really like like that analogy. That's a great analogy. Yeah, Yeah, and and I think... I think we wouldn't be we wouldn't be happy if if that mechanic turned to us and said, "Well, you just tell me what I should fix." Right. Right. <laughs> right. And, but but I, but I think that's that's one of the worst. Th- you know, if you talk about bad ways of doing it, you've seen. I, I think that's the bad way of doing it. And like Nicole said, when you go in there and say, "Well, what do you want to do? Do you want us to do everything, or do you want us to let your mother die?" And you put all of that. You put all of that on the family, and 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 I I do exactly like Nicole said. I go in there. I say, listen, you're not making any decision. You have you have no say in whether this person lives or dies. That's been decided, or even take it on yourself. You know, I, I I'm unable to cure your parent, but let's 
figure out what your mom or dad would want. They were awake and with what they would want in this scenario. And, and the ultimate course has already been set, and let's just focus on doing what they would want and making them as comfortable as possible while we do that. And, and, yeah. and you, just see, you just see the weight lifted off these family's shoulders yeah. when you frame it that sure. way. Well, and I think the other thing – sorry. Um, go ahead, Charity. Oh, no, I was just going to say, often we'll tell families, you know, if so-and-so could speak to me right now, you and I would not be having this conversation. I would go to him. Right. And I would ask him, what do you want me to do in this situation? But I can't do that. And so I have to go to the people who love him like crazy, and that's you guys. And so what I'm looking for is I want you to speak on his behalf. And I know all this falls down to you know ethical principles and all of that, but like I, I agree with Matt, take it off their shoulders. It's not something they should live with for the rest of their life. Um, because honesty is, if I could ask the patient, I would. Well, and if I'm having that discussion with the family, um, I will go around to each family and say, what was, it, what was the favorite thing to do? Or, you know, with older couples, how did you guys meet? What do you guys do together? Uh, you know, what made life life for that individual? And yeah. I think we actually, it's interesting because we'll have, you know, the family that's looking at, um, you know, do we do a trach and peg or not? I think the other question is, you know, well, is ensuring them that, you know, proceeding down that pathway, giving that individual more time, doesn't change their right of self-determination. So, you know, if that that most form that somebody filled out in their doctor's office, you know, what's the intent behind that? Is it I never want to live on a machine forever or I want a crutch to get better? So a trach doesn't mean that eventually you still couldn't withdraw care if they're really, you know, you're just not ready yet, but it's time to move forward, that's okay. We'll move forward with the procedures. There's still another fence to climb. Um, and then what does it mean to withdraw care? Right. You know, you can keep the breathing tube, get rid of the breathing tube. You know, comfort and dignity are non-negotiable. You know, we can't change nature, but it's going to come with dignity and comfort because that's what they deserve. They it's deserve hard. their it's dignity. It's hard sometimes. Right, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I think it's so yeah, hard I... sometimes to balance how much information to give. Yeah. Um, but I, I want to move on to a, um, a topic about, because I've heard a couple of you guys already talk about how um, we recognize if somebody's good or bad at end-of-life discussions, but how are you guys judging if somebody's good or bad? What criteria define somebody who's good at it, or what's, what, what criteria are we judging in an effective um, end-of-life discussion? And then, if I could, part two again, um, with that question, how do we get better? <laughs> I think um, when I was a medical student, I was a fourth-year medical student, I was a sub-I, and um, the neurosurgeon had come in to talk to a family, kid had been at some, you know, bar in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and got hit in the head with um, the stand that the symbols sit on, and there was actually plastic embedded in the kid's head, and the neurosurgeon says, well, um, you know, he's got nothing left, and other people are going to need his organs. And I, oh, man. I mean, this was 20 years, 20-something years ago, and it's just like, I don't even know what to say. Oh my God, these parents look like they've been poleaxed. 
and it's like, what is going on? Oh, my God, are you a human being? You cretin on the other side of the curtain. So I think you certainly have those egregious examples, and that individual is never going to be fixable. Um, I think some of it is the more times you do it, I think you get a little bit better at picking up cues from the family, you know, they're starting to lean back a little bit, or they're leaning in forward more, the glaze of the eyes, um, you know, they're they're not ready for more information now. I think some of it is just doing it. Um, I think that there are definitely, um, we have a, a program here, and I sent you guys some of the information, um, you know, workshops on delivering bad news, and it's a little cheesy because, like, and you're role-playing it a bit, but we do a standardized patient experience with our fourth-year students or our third-year students during their clerkship where um, in the middle of the scenario, they're handed a card that the patient has colon cancer, which is sort of the how do you steal yourself, how do you deal with that, how do you recognize what's going on with the individual in front of you? I think there are ways to practice and train. There's not great literature, but there is some um, charity that the um, the workshop that you gave I thought was fantastic, and it very much mirrors um, one of the ones we offer here. I think that um, your palliative care colleagues are vital um, for our fellows rotating with palliative care because um, you just need like anything else, you know, you need the practice. I think start early, please, please, please start early. Yeah. The, the medical students, you're going to have a subset that they're good at it. They're always going to be good at it. Right. They're, they're good people skills. Um, they're empathetic and it works. And then you have a group that I think can be can be trained. They can hone those skills and they can move towards it. They just haven't seen it enough. Um, they haven't they haven't experienced it in their own life. Um, and, and they haven't seen it played out, so the thought of even going through it is is very um, gives them a lot of anxiety. And then there are those there are people that they're really not good at it. And I would like to think that we can <laughs> we can help all of them. So I think it starts early. I think that we do need to address this in the medical schools, which is why we created the uh, module that we did. It's one that we give in the third year, and start that conversation of you guys are going to be asked to do this in about another year. You're going to get that call that the family's in the waiting room that you need to go talk to them. And so how do you do it? And give them actual steps. You know, there's several mnemonics that are out there, nurse, spikes. There's several papers that have been written on, you know, having a systematic way of coming to this conversation, prepping yourself, setting up the environment, assessing where the patient is at, giving the news, and then, you know, creating some sort of strategy or plan to um, give them an idea of where we're going from here. So I think that yeah. training them early on, and then there are several assessment tools. So we have one um, that um, one of the um, internists here, um, Dr. Richards, uses that she basically will carry this around with her, and when she watches a resident have an encounter, she pulls this out and starts an assessment. And it basically is things like, did you address them at eye level? Did you introduce yourself? Did you appear rushed? Did you use medical language? Or, you know, did you speak at the level of the patient? And then uses that opportunity to say, okay, let's talk about how you did how did you think that went? Um, and I think that those things are are very helpful. On the attending level, I know that, that our school and other schools are starting to set up, um, you know, ways of at least addressing this and saying, you know, mm -hmm. especially based on our patient satisfaction scores of how are we good, how do we interact with our patients? And so I, I do believe it is, 
is getting more attention. Um, I know that some of the studies have shown there's that quote that, you know, says um, a patient will forgive a doctor for an error of the head, but rarely one of the heart. And I think it's true that patients, they get mad at us um, when we don't do it right. And so I think that it does, we are going to see it in our patient satisfaction scores and unfortunately in litigation. So, so Charity, uh, I agree. I think it's important we train our residents and students to do this. So, so sometimes if I have a senior resident, I should let them start and lead the discussion. Will, will you ever, you or Nicole, ever let the senior resident start that discussion and, and, and watch them and, you know, jump in if needed? But I think that's the best way to get them comfortable with that. I do. Um, I think that, um, you know, it, sometimes it, it depends a little bit on – uh, like when we have a family meeting, I'll usually have at least our, one of our APPs on our ICU. Um, it depends on – we have multiple different level residents rotating through. Um, it depends a little bit on the family as well, but I will I will have them start. So, I will too. And I, I can remember very clearly the first time I was asked to do this and, and what that felt like and how thankful I was that somebody was willing to kind of walk me through it. And I actually talked about it in my East essay because it was that profound to me that we are given um, that hardship but also that honor to be with yeah. our patients and our families in this way because it it really is amazing on multiple levels as exhausting as it is because it is, I think, hard to do this over and over and over again and to give that information, that news, and then turn around and have to give the next trauma patient your 100%. And so I do think that it is important for our trainees, and and I will. Um, It's hard when they don't do it (laughs) like I would, Um, and you see the the patient, you know, the family kind of floundering a little and that need to intervene, but I do think it's important because they've got to learn how to do it. Yeah. So one thing Kevin and I thought would be uh, fun, and Nicole, you already jumped the gun on us, is we we wanted each of uh, you to give us an example of, of how you've seen it done poorly. And, and Nicole just gave us a great example of the, you know, the neurosurgeon who oh, says, "Well, someone else, someone else needs it those organs." It was mortifying. Organs. It was mortifying. So, so we want to we want to go around and, and each of us give give the, the example of how you've seen it done really badly. I think sometimes those are some of the best learning examples. So, so Charity, so, do you want to give us an example? Yeah, Nicole. No, but with that, so I am still so petrified. Twenty-two years later, to bring up. Anything I don't bring up anything to do with organ donation ever. If the family, oh, yeah, that, I will answer their questions, and I will say I will have someone come talk to you about that. But that just, yeah. So well, that's why I think they're they're great, powerful teaching experiences. So so let's just go around charity. Having an example of a really bad <laughs> bad way of delivering bad news you've seen. I do. We had a, a patient at the hospital that um, had an advanced stage endometrial cancer, and basically it was metastatic and had eaten through the abdominal wall. And so we got called to see a patient for a fistula. And I have to say, on my end, emotionally, I was not expecting what I saw because I thought, oh, a fistula. She said previous surgery. You know, I thought it was going to be a typical, you know, post-abdomen, post-abdominal surgery fistula. And went in there. Her abdominal wall was just completely destroyed. And... um and it became obvious that this was not this wasn't something that a surgeon can fix that this was in stage cancer metastatic cancer, and so you know we had addressed her wounds and then called in um 
oncology and, and their discussion basically was that you have an end-stage cancer, it's in your liver. Oh, you didn't know that? Yeah, it's in your liver. So they didn't at all figure out where the patient was at, you know, Gosh. what was going on, and basically said there's nothing that we can do. And I just thought that's not that's not where we leave this. There's always something we can do. So I can't make it better. I can't make it go away, but I can walk this with you. I can take this journey with you. I can make sure you don't have pain. I can try to clean up these wounds because there's, you know, green suckers everywhere. And just to hear him say that there's nothing we can do and that we should call palliation, and she just kept shaking her head. And I finally asked her, I said, do you know what palliative care is? And she said, no. And I just thought this is not going in the direction that we would want, you know. And, and so I didn't want to be disrespectful to a colleague. You know, waited for him to somewhat finish, and then he left. And then I said, okay, let's start over here. <laughs> let's talk about this again, you know, and explain to her, yes, we can't give you chemo, but we can do this, we can do this, we can do this, we can help you get home. I know that's important to you, all of those things. But just to hear somebody say there's nothing we can do for you um, is hard. All right. How about you, Kevin? Well, I had a um, I witnessed uh, a surgeon who operated on somebody with a perforated viscous and uh, came out and literally said to the family, "Your dad is effed." Mm. And um, it was silence. Wow. There was a silence of awkward silence. There was a sad silence for me. There was a shocking silence from everybody, and nobody knew what to say. And it was probably one of the one of the times where I finally re- I first time I realized that not all surgeons are good at delivering bad news. Because i got to tell you, before that, before witnessing that, I always thought, especially us acute care surgeons, because we deal with it all the time, I always thought, you know what, we're pretty darn good at this because we do it all the time. And, and, and that's when I learned it's not the case for everybody, unfortunately. And how about you, Dave? I'm paraphrasing here, but I think the phrase was something like, uh, your dad is going to die. He can die in an ugly way or he can die in a peaceful way. Which would you like? Oh, jeez. <laughs> well, it's interesting, yeah, right? I... Because there's a, so, you know, not everybody has to die with a scar on their abdomen. And I think that is an important concept to bring through. Like, you don't have, they don't have to die in an operating room. But there's so much better ways of working that in than that. Holy monkeys. <laughs> yeah. And I'll I'll, uh, I'll throw I'll throw mine in, which is kind of the opposite point. If if you're going out to talk to the family and they have no idea what's been going on, and the patient is okay or alive, you generally want to lead with that. Yes, and definitely. and and I saw somebody we operated on for multiple gunshot wounds, and but you know was fixed everything was doing okay, but we walked out and and the surgeon I was with spent about 20 minutes going through. You know, shot here, severely injured, horrible, you know, a lot of blood loss, like literally 15 minutes of everything. And then at the end, oh, and so he's, he's going to the ICU and he's okay right now. And, and, and literally the, the family, I just remember, was furious because they, they were sure by that point he was going to say, and your son died. And, and just at the end, I just remember them, and I'm thinking the same thing of, of all they wanted to hear was, your son is okay, and then all the rest of that. So that's kind of the flip side of, of deliver the good news up front and don't don't prolong them when they think their son could po- or daughter could possibly be dead. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I always lead with that when they're alive, but I never lead with they're dead. I always do the long buildup when they haven't exactly. survived. Exactly. So, yeah, I could see how that would be just a touch unnerving. 
Nicole uh, and Charity, I, I have to ask this question because it's something that we don't, and I know we're running a little over, but um, this is an important question because we rarely talk about it, which is, let's flip the tables here and say, what's the emotional toll on the provider? Um, somebody who is constantly having to deliver bad news. And, um, you know, briefly, please, you know, share with us what are your experiences? How do you deal with, how do you deal with the emotional toll of having to do this on a fairly frequent basis? Um, I think that every one of them steals your soul. And one of the things I tell our trainees is that the day you're not affected at all by telling a patient's family that their loved one is irrevocably changed, um, whether they're still alive and irrevocably changed or dead, um, is probably the day you need to quit medicine. Um, I do take our trainees, especially our medical students, when it's the first time they've ever experienced that, or through there and you do, everybody deals with it a little bit differently. I tend to internalize and eat ice cream and then count on hugs when I get home. And like my husband can tell when I walk through the door whether I just, when I just need, you know, 45 minutes of no humans, um, I think we're we're very good at compartmentalizing and then moving on to the next patient. But I think we're very bad at taking, you know, that graveyard of souls and truly processing that um, without it becoming, um, becoming a weight that overwhelms us. How about you, Charity? Um, I think talking about it is so important. You know, I've heard, it said before that the, the doctor's lounge is the surgeon's haven, and you, you can hear us talking about things and about cases and about people, and I think it's a way of working through it, whether it is, you know, the doctor's lounge or your your partner's office. I often will plop down on the couch and say, oh, my gosh, you know what happened last night, and talk through it. So I think that the actual debriefing process, whether it's formal, which is helpful to the team, or it is informal with a friend and somebody that you trust, you know, a spouse or a partner, um, it's yeah. helpful. I think weighing the good with the bad. So we, we took an oath and we signed up for this and we feel the responsibility that we are here to help. And when we feel like that we didn't achieve that because of the patient's disease or because of what happened, I think that, that we remember that. And I think that our listeners all could probably close their eyes and see that face of that patient um, that that they still think about, that, that they know that 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 person didn't survive and how hard it was for them. But if we weigh that against literally the thousands of patients that have been helped, you know, within our own practices and, you know, for the East members at large, it it's an enormous number. And so I think that remembering that and remembering the patient that went to rehab and came back and you see their picture in the ICU and remembering the good that we did helps to at least offset that feeling like, I wish that person would have lived kind of thing. And then I, lastly, and, and I tell our learners this, and medical students and residents, is be present because that that connection with those families and with um, the treatment team and, and everyone that's involved, um, I think, is what helps us get through it. And my concern is sometimes, especially our learners, are intermittent, and they don't see that after the person died that the mom came and hugged us and that, you know, that we got to laugh about that patient's life and who they were and how silly they were and all those good things. And so I think that being present and, and being a part of the process is actually quite helpful. What I do with um, the older patients is ask every single one of them how they met their spouse. 
so that I can remember the human. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that there is definitely, you know, we have the good that outweighs the bad, and um, focusing on they're just leaving heartbroken, and that's the best we can do. And but I, I do think that you need to process it. You can't just. I think we're like I said before, we're really good at bottling it out. But if you don't, like you just said, Charity, talk to somebody about it. You know that pressure valve is going to blow, and that's that's not good for you. That's not good for your family. That's not good for your partners. That's not good for your patients. That's just that's that's not good. Um, and I think one of the things we haven't done well, though we've gotten a lot better, certainly since I was training, is that it's okay to have emotions. It's okay to be a human being. Which is something that has not traditionally been uh, been espoused in surgery, but I think that that's that paradigm is changing. I think for the yeah. for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, there's so much more that we can talk about in terms of um, end-of-life discussions and delivering bad news. Um, and I really want to thank our phenomenal panelists, uh, Nicole and Charity. Um, you've really given us a lot to think about, and hopefully will spark some uh, surgeon scientists out there listening to push forward uh, the science of communication and, and uh, in medicine, and, and especially as it pertains to delivering bad news. With your permission, I would like to close with a quote from a, a renowned oncologist who, who writes a lot about breaking bad news, the, um, the late Dr. Robert Buckman, and he said that the skill and effort that we put into our clinical communication does, does make an indelible impression on our patients, their families, and their friends. And if we do it badly, they may never forgive us, but if we do it well, they may never forget us. And um, thank you, too, for uh, so much for um, joining us today and, and sharing your experiences with us. For our audience members, thanks for joining us. And, again, there's so much to learn. And uh, for more information on improving communications in difficult and critical ca- uh, patient care scenarios, please visit our very timely East Literature Review for February on our website, www.east.org. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks. It was great. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast brought to you by the East Online Education Section, the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the east.